Okay. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Greg Chase. I'm a partner at the law firm of Reed Smith, based in New York. I'm very pleased to be here this afternoon. I, we have the last panel, but I think it's perhaps one of the most interesting of the day. Um, my firm represents clients in a range of corporate transactions in New York, including M&A. We've been involved in several M&A exercises in the last several months involving shipping. Um, I think it might be best just to go right down the panel and have everybody introduce themselves, tell us a little bit about what they do, and then we'll get into the substance of the discussion. Krista, you've just been, you are serving double duty, so we know you already, but perhaps you could talk about. Sure. So, so um, I, Krista Volpicelli, I am based in New York where I run our maritime investment banking practice. Um, half of what I do is helping advise companies access the capital markets debt or equity. Half of what I do is mergers and acquisitions advisory, which is the topic of this panel. George. Hi, guys. My name is George. I am a ship owner that luckily uh, recently I'm involved in the capital markets, which I'm very happy to, to be. Um, I'm very interested in this conversation as uh, I think it is one of the hottest subjects going forward. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Spiros Kapralos. I've been involved in the capital markets for many years, but uh, last year was definitely, as George said, a very interesting year on the M&A business. And uh, I'm particularly surprised at how many people are in the room, having run late for about an hour or so. Jerry. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Jerry Calogiratos. I'm the CEO of Capital Product Partners. Um, we are right now in the process uh, of spinning off part of our business, uh, 25 tankers, uh, with um, a US-based company, Diamond Nest. And we will be forming a uh, $1.7 billion transaction. And we'll be forming one of the largest uh, public tanker companies out there. Uh, that. Um, Transaction is expected to close uh, by the end of um, this quarter, so we are right in the midst of it, and uh, very happy to to discuss uh, the M&A side of things. So, Krista, maybe we could talk for a minute about the general environment and why we're seeing M&A in shipping at this time. 2018, I think, was a strong year for M&A generally across all industries, but we certainly saw a number of shipping transactions as well. Um, What's setting the stage for these transactions? When I was a young lawyer, I often wanted to work on large transactions, and I would say, what about M&A? And I was told, it's kind of unlikely for shipping, because why buy a company when you can simply buy a ship? What's, what's different now? Um, so I, I've been at Citigroup for 16 years and have been spending time in the shipping sector for, for that duration. And since I've been a banker for the sector, people have been talking about consolidation. And my observation is that there are, there are things within shipping that make M&A harder than other sectors. It's a very fragmented industry. You have companies that have um, owners which have a family history for generations. You have state-backed companies. And so when you think about some of the social considerations for bringing two companies together, I think the barriers can be higher in this industry than in others, uh, even if a transaction makes sense on paper. Um, two companies just may not have the cultures to come together in a way that makes sense. And additionally, because some of the more commodity-oriented sectors um, are so fragmented, 
when you think about some of, you know, what, how do we analyze an M&A transaction, oftentimes we look at are there synergies on the cost side? Can you save money by being a bigger company? And are there synergies on the revenue side? Can you earn greater returns by bringing two companies together? And the reality is that many companies have been able, able to operate their assets very efficiently as, as smaller companies. And so sometimes in certain sectors, the revenue synergies aren't there. But we have seen over the last five years an acceleration in consolidation across all sectors of shipping, and, and we believe that that will continue. Um, you've seen it in the liner sector, where today, you know, the top seven liners control 80% of the market. Um, and there's definitely revenue and cost synergies there in terms of how those companies run their networks. And then as you think about companies in other sectors, we, whether it's tanker, dry bulk, LPG, um, you have seen companies explore mergers in a way, some of that is driven by ownership structures, where you have financial investors that are looking at things in terms of facilitating their exit um, and, and a path to get out. And also, I think there is a true benefit to scale in terms of accessing capital, whether that's equity or debt. And as companies have seen that and realized that, you have seen a valuation difference uh, for companies who have been able to use consolidation effectively to improve their platform. So, so we believe that it is a trend that is continuing, although there are hindrances uh, which just make that, that match you know, uh, critical to find. But as a, as a practical matter, are we talking about consolidation among potentially private companies, or is this really a phenomenon of public companies or public companies that uh, do a transaction with perhaps a, a financial back platform, a PE back platform? I, I think it's both, but you have three public companies up here on the stage, which I think is, you know, certainly answers part of your question. Well, I think that consolidation should be done for the right reasons, and the right reason is a good business, a good deal. So I would say that, in theory, uh, it should be the same, whether it's a public company or a private company, the consideration should be the same. Now, that's the theory. The reality is that public companies have a lot more um, positive things to do a consolidation because they have access to capital, which a private company doesn't have, and also they, they can provide liquidity. Therefore, that's why we see that happening a lot more with uh, public companies. And uh, it, it might have happened in a couple of private companies, but we never hear about it. I mean, I, I remember over the years a couple of such examples, but you know, they're not public, so they're not getting publicized. But I think that uh, the fundamentals should be the same, whether public or not. Spiros, would you agree with that? Well, um, we are a dry bulk company, publicly listed. In 2018, we did uh, three big transactions, and those were driven from different factors. One had to do with private equity that wanted to exit, and of course, they preferred to come to a, a bigger dry bulk company that would make their exit easier. The other was a company that was listed but had a very low liquidity, small, and their stock was not trading too much. So they felt by merging with us that they would get the liquidity they needed for their investors, and it was obvious. The third was a private guy who felt that his interests would be better aligned with a 
public company where he could exit but also keep the stock and, uh, and be part of the dry bulk business. So for different reasons, uh, people felt that uh, it would be better if they joined forces with us. And of course, it, was, it wouldn't make sense if uh, we, our stock was not trading uh, close to NAV and that uh, made it easier to use our stock as a currency to do those deals. And uh, it proved to be beneficial for everybody because everybody realized what Krista said. First, that they would have, and we would have, commercial benefits from make, make, making the company bigger. And on the other side, well, by making it also bigger, we'd have a lot of cost synergies that would reduce our cost of operating, both on the operating expense level as well as a GNA level. Jerry, is it some of the same factors that are driving the transaction that you, you just described? I think if you wanted to summarize the trends uh, that have been leading to increased m and activity, I think what uh, Spiro um, just presented is a very good, um, uh, it's a very good uh, representation of what is happening in the market. So one reason is why it's that we have been through two or three difficult years in the markets. Uh, be it dry bulk or tanker and containers. And so we saw a number of listed companies being cash trapped or being, um, uh, having increased financial difficulties. So stronger partners were there to, uh, to take over and create uh, a combination that would be more reasonably levered. We have seen that. We have seen, uh, of course, also companies uh, that uh, are trying to attain uh, uh, size and thus gain more liquidity, or if they are private, um, get uh, their shareholders uh, more liquidity without uh, losing exposure to, uh, to a market, in a specific case, the dry bulk market. Uh, and you have also seen um, the exit of uh, certain private equity, or this being an umbrella term, let's say financial sponsors. Um, don't forget that the high watermark of uh, financial sponsor investments in shipping was around 2012-2014. Now, if you add to this five to seven years, that means that many of these investments um, uh, need to at least attain some semblance of liquidity around now, last year, this year, uh, the year after that. Um, in our case, there was also an additional, if you want, factor. That factor was um, the fact that we were seeking to optimize valuation. That is, we did uh, an asset realignment. Uh, we had a number of assets that uh, were getting older, our tanker assets that were not fit for our business model, where um, we require an MLP to have good period coverage. You know, when a vessel is getting 12, 13 years of age on the tanker side, it would be increasingly more difficult to find period coverage. While in a more spot exposed uh, company, it would find the right home. So we optimized our, if you want, asset allocation by maintaining the vessels that have long-term charters. At the same time, we attained a very good premium for our unit holders, um, one of the biggest ever paid in third-party transactions. And uh, we got uh, a new company uh, public, Diamond S, or hopefully will be done uh, very soon, which I think it will be quite unique in the sense that uh, it will be a large-cap company, north of $700 million. It has a very good man management, good corporate governance, very reasonable leverage, uh, and no legacy issues. So it was, if you want, a combination of certain um, unique factors uh, that uh, got that uh, deal going. 
So to a large extent, it really is the need for PE or financial sponsors to at least have a pathway to exit that's driving these transactions. And there's some synergy with the public companies because they can provide that, that pathway. Is that a fair, a fair summary? If I may, I mean, again, there is, there's this umbrella term, um, PE. There are firms that have perpetual capital. There are firms that have 10-year capital, five, seven years. And there are hedge funds that their horizon is uh, tomorrow. So uh, in our case, for example, I see that the PE uh, shareholders, our fellow shareholders, are very much committed in uh, getting a proper company uh, put together with good corporate governance. And exit is not necessarily what they have in mind for tomorrow. So, and I think some of the shareholders of my fellow speakers here, panelists here, they have the, the same thing in mind. Spiro. Uh, absolutely, it's what Jerry said. Uh, PE entered into the market when they thought it was a low cycle back in 2012, 2013, 2014. Some of them are looking for an exit, some others not, and they like to, to stay there if they see good corporate governance. And uh, because size matters, they expect to have uh, better results if uh, they go into a larger scheme with a bigger liquidity that makes their exit also easier. George. Yeah. Well, definitely financial institutions, they take the money from uh, LPs and they have to return the money to the LPs. That's a fact of life. We all know that. That doesn't mean, though, that... Uh, Having uh, into a public company PEs, it's uh, a negative uh, issue. I, I actually think it's a very positive issue for various reasons. Uh, number one, if it is a majority shareholder, which usually is the case, you have given that within a certain period of time, say in the next three years, that portion of the company, let's say 55, 60, whatever percent of the company, is going to end up to the public. Because if these guys sell their stock to exit, they're not going to sell their stock to some you know, private in investor or to one guy. They're going to sell it in the market. So that is going to increase liquidity, which I think, Krista will tell us, is the ideal scenario for a company. A company to be public has to be public, meaning there has to be no one with more than 10, 15% into the company. Otherwise, it's not really public. So given the fact that we are having these PEs eventually exiting uh, for the shareholders, it's a, it's a sort of a guarantee that the company that invested is eventually going to have a big liquidity. Whether that's going to be in a year or two or three, it will be. Naturally, these guys, they are investing and they're very experienced. And the only way, I mean, the, the, the private equity model is they buy a company, they sell it later, or they take it public later. And that's how they make money. So they make money. That the make money is the important part of it. So they're not going to go into a deal to, make, to lose money. And therefore, they're completely aligned with the other shareholders. So the price of the stock will have to go up for them to, to exit, which I think is uh, the, the target of any shareholder. Yeah, I, I think a couple of years ago, we would hear at conferences like this that, that PE would prefer to hang on to an investment, perhaps, rather than change management. Uh, that they would wait and see if the market's recovered and see if a different kind of transaction, an IPO for, for whatever platform they invested in, might become feasible. But now we're getting a little bit longer into some of these investments, and we've seen transactions like the ones we're talking about today. Uh, Krista, do you think there's a, a kind of a, a change in psychology among these financial sponsors that, at this stage? You know? uh, I, I don't 
I don't think it's a change in psychology. I think George said it very well that financial investors and private equity are ultimately driven by what makes sense for their equity return. And, you know, we have been in an environment, as we talked about in the last panel, where capital markets have been very difficult for shipping uh, for the last three, four years. Um, when the IPO market shut to shipping in mid-2015, um, there were three, four um, IPOs in the sector in the pipeline that had private equity type owners that could have tried to exit that way. So exactly to your point, but when the markets closed, that, that didn't make sense anymore. And I think that, you know, certainly the presence of private equity has, has been part of this trend towards accelerating M&A. But I don't think it's the only reason. I think that you know, M&A has to make sense for two companies to come together. But increasingly, as companies evaluate that, um, you, know, you will see combinations of companies that maybe don't have private equity owners. But it certainly has been part of accelerating the trend as they take that long-term view for what's best for the equity returns. So it, it, can, we, can we draw some conclusions about the kinds of synergies that are created that are, are the most appealing at this stage? Is there any similarity among the, 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 the types of transactions represented by, by the three of, of you sitting here on the panel this afternoon? Is it about, you know, it's about vessel, fleet, fleet harmonizing the fleets? Uh, is it about management synergies? Well, it's a combination. It's, uh, as I said, it, uh, making and having a bigger fleet allows you to have uh, uh, more opportunities on the commercial side to have uh, maybe offices in places that you would normally not have if you were a smaller company. And uh, that gives you better opportunities uh, to get better rates, uh, charter rates. On the other hand, on the, having also a, big, a bigger fleet allows you to have economies of scale with your suppliers and, and, and be able to do things that you would normally not do otherwise. And I think that uh, makes it easier when you're a bigger company. But it doesn't mean that a small company cannot be well run at the same time. But on the merger side, uh, for public companies right now, it's very difficult or it's impossible to do, things, to do deals when most stocks, are, most companies are trading at uh, 30 to 50 percent uh, discount to their net asset value. And therefore, it doesn't make sense for a private owner to join forces at on an NAV to NAV volume and, uh, and, and get shares that are trading at a, quite a big discount. So, so is, is that to suggest we need to see some recovery in the, 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 the public markets before we'll see uh, more M&A activity? I think like the previous panel said that it's a very difficult time to have IPOs or to have uh, follow-ons, the same thing is on the M&A market regarding public companies. Well, it, it does seem that there's been a particular opportunity, given the need for some PE to exit for some of the existing public companies to engage in transactions, your, your company, for example, and use shares as a currency to get those deals done. Um, are, are, is share price allowing transactions to uh, you know, progress at this stage, or are prices a little bit too low at this stage? I personally think it doesn't make sense mm -hmm. for other people to join force with us at this point. When uh, the stock will be trading closer to net asset value, I think it does make sense. And also if you're a very small owner probably uh, and you want to exit, 
it's better to sell the assets and, and get the real NAV. Jerry. The, the, only, the only thing that could work against this is, of course, um, one of the reasons that we're seeing M&A was, uh, especially between public companies, was that um, no capital could be raised for cash-strapped companies or companies that have been facing financial difficulties. And there have been quite a few of these examples that led M&A. Now, if you see a very hot market um, in the capital markets or shipping markets or both, then, of course, uh, you will probably see uh, a slowdown in public-to-public M&A as people, you know, they can survive on their own. But on the other hand, uh, as uh, Spiro said, um, shares are a currency, and uh, if that currency uh, is valuable enough at any given point, it might attract uh, people that want to uh, get a little more liquidity but maintain um, exposure to a specific uh, market. You know, somebody that uh, owns a very big fleet and it's very difficult to exit the market, uh, potentially a financial sponsor that has invested a few years back, um, might decide that, yeah, this is not a bad route. I will uh, attain liquidity, maybe sell uh, a third now and wait, wait it out if I believe that this is the case. So I think a better market might work a little both ways, but definitely against uh, M&A if it's uh, between public to, to public companies. George, do you have perspective on that? Uh, I have a little bit different view from the gentleman. Of course, I'm talking about containers. In containers, consolidation is very important. Um, I mean, I, I run a fleet of dry bulk also, so I can, I can comment on dry bulk. I don't have an opinion on, on tankers, but Jerry can tell us. Uh, in uh, dry bulk, being big is important, but I think in, in containers is a lot more important. The charterers in containers are very few, and size matters a lot. So. Like I said, a good business, a good deal is a good deal. Uh, therefore, if uh, another party wants to join with a public company that has, um, let's say, 50% discount to the NAV stock and uh, is willing to do an NAV to an NAV transaction, it's a little bit like timing. Do we buy ships when the, the chart, you know, when the chart rates are great and the values are top? No. We buy ships at the bottom. So merging with a company when the, it's a bottom, right, it's a low market, it's not necessarily bad because we all know that when the market gets hot, the stock price is going to trade above an AV. So why does it matter to merge with somebody knowing that by merging you're getting the advantages of, talking always about containers, the advantages of growing your fleet and getting better charter rates and better and lo longer charter rates and all these benefits that you can get. And at the end of the day, when the market goes up, your stock is going to go appreciate, will appreciate anyway. So it doesn't really matter. It's a timing issue. So it's an investment. It's another investment. It's not necessarily the stock that drives it. Krista, what would you say about that? Should the existing public companies be pursuing M&A vigorously as a way to get larger and perhaps you know, have, a, have, a, have better access to capital in the, in the public markets? Um, I, I, so I do think being larger enhances your access to capital. That in and of itself is not a reason to think about M&A. But I guess the, the conversation that we were having is, you know, in a, is it dependent, is it make it easier in a bad market or in a good market if everyone's trading at a discount to NAV? I think that it, you can see it both ways. It's all about relative value. So if you have two companies that are coming together in a stock transaction, 
It's about relative value and the seller, if you will, what are their, are they willing to be staying in over the longer term and take a view? As markets get stronger and valuations are better, I think it certainly makes that stock currency more valuable, um, to Spiros's point. It also starts to open up the idea of being able to think about consideration, right? So if, if the markets are stronger, the company that is the acquirer has the options, more options to use cash or their stock in terms of what they are offering to a target company. And in many cases, the target may find that desirable. Now, in this sector, that also becomes a double-edged sword because, you know, if, do people really want to cash out in a rising market or would they prefer to take shares and continue to participate in the upside? And that's really where the timing element comes in. And um, so it, it really is about finding a transaction that will meet the objectives of the seller at that time and whatever their time horizon is in terms of staying in that company. Can I add something else? Sure. Uh, doing a merger is not pressing a button and happening in uh, one week. You know, to do a merger and complete it, you're probably talking uh, easily three to six months if you're lucky. So you cannot really time it that perfectly. And as we see, the cycles lately are not lasting years, the lasting months. So that is one other issue. So you want to be there, merged and ready, with your stock in hand when the market raises. You won't be able to do that if you start the merger discussions in a, in a, in a strong market. You know, the market might not be there when you're doing the merger. Point number one. Second point. Finance, we all know it's very difficult. What we realize is that when you are a public company, the opportunities for alternative finance, and I'm not saying you know, private equity finance, but any kind of finance, you name it, uh, leasing, Chinese leasing, uh, Japanese leasing, Jolco, whatever, they open up a lot more opportunities than when you are a private company, regardless of whether you are a super blue chip private company. It's the there are some boxes that uh, all these alternative finance companies have to tick to approach you. And being public, especially if you are public rated, it ticks all the boxes. And therefore, that is another reason that if you are a private company and you join a public company, you merge with it, suddenly you have a lot more refinancing options that you didn't have as a private. Spiro. George remind me something that... Uh during those uh, acquisitions that we had, we had the opportunity either to keep the existing debt through the agreement, of course, of the lenders, or, and in most cases, we were able to refinance the whole fleet that we were buying at much better rates in terms of financing, bigger amounts, most probably, and also at the same time, achieving much lower spreads on the cost of our financing. And that was an additional advantage for the mergers and the acquisitions that we did. We're actually getting short on time already. And I, I think given this topic, I was wondering uh, if anybody has a question in the audience we'd like to bring forward. Seems we don't have any questions from the audience. I wanted to give the opportunity. Um, our, I wanted to talk about one thing that I, I get into discussions a lot is about is whether or not it makes sense or matters that a company that's merging 
or frankly, ra looking to raise capital in this market. So maybe it's a relates to the capital markets as well, Krista. Needs to have a commercial management platform. Uh, do we see is is our asset we, is is our, is asset plays that are driving these deals, or we have pure asset companies, or uh, does it make a difference to have a management company that's part of the deal, and can that drive an M&A transaction? I'm not sure if I totally understand your question, but um, I think that when you look at the companies that are on this stage, uh, all of them have very capable commercial and technical organizations already. And so the question becomes, as a company with those capabilities, as they look at acquiring other companies, do they need to acquire that capability? And the answer is probably no. Um, so certainly if you have two companies that are going to combine and they both have these platforms, there could be synergies in terms of combining them and, and operating as one. But for a company which already has that commercial strength, being able to offer that commercial strength to a target company and say, you know, take my stock, become part of this bigger company, and you will see benefits of that as well. I think that can be quite attractive when you think about you know, the types of companies that we have here. And, and from the perspective of companies that are smaller, um, could be a reason why they might think about it as well. I don't know if that answered your question, but. Jerry, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I agree with um, Krista. I don't think uh, it drives uh, the transaction, but um, on the other hand, as a transaction happens, uh, like in our case, you exchange information, you exchange um, ideas, you exchange best practices across commercial, technical, procurement, uh, how you tackle regulation, how you attract talent. And I think this is a very valuable dialogue for any two organizations. And if this is done in good faith and in goodwill, uh, it can help um, uh, drive um, a lot of value. And this is definitely something that we see and we are pursuing uh, in our transaction. So. While uh, it, it's definitely not the driving force, I, I think there is a value to it um, as um, good companies uh, come together. Krista early on mentioned social issues, but it sounds like social issues, at least in the context of what you described, uh, can, can be managed and, and, and people can share information and, and, and build value by coming together in the way you described. Right, you know, shipping in the end is not just um, the assets, right? We, we talk about assets and uh, NAV, but in the end you, ha you want to be uh, literally in the same boat with uh, people that have the same culture, they, say, they share the same um, way of uh, tackling issues, um, um, be it for safety, environment, uh, operations, uh, dealing with uh, customers. In our case, majors, uh, which is uh, a very important thing. For, so when we encountered the OMI people again in the form of Diamond S, people that we knew and they knew us from, uh, from the OMI days when we were competing for BP and Total Charters, we knew that uh, these are like-minded people. And I think that was a very important element in getting uh, a transaction done. So I think to have matching cultures, um, especially if it's about a partnership, um, uh, be it at the board level, be it at the management level, um, or be it at the ship management level, it's, uh, it's very important. It's not just about the assets. Right? Totally agree. Uh, we had a very positive 
experience from those uh, mergers. First of all, uh, our board is much stronger. We added talent. Uh, a Norwegian and an Italian guy have joined our board, very knowledgeable, and they bring a lot. The management team was also uh, strengthened by some expertise. Maybe a little bit different cultures, different know-how, and this makes the company also stronger. And uh, also at the people's level, we found some commercial people and some technical people that are very good, and they create a big asset to our company. George. I think that uh, the idea of uh, being a public company is you have to always look at the interest of the shareholders. So given that, we would be more than happy to even merge the management if the other company's management is uh, equal-minded or equally capable, or leave the management with the other company and we man they manage the ships that they used to manage and we do benchmarking between the two of us. It's not about management, really. It's about creating shareholder value. So whatever, we would be open to anything. Well, I see actually our time is now going in reverse as well. Krista, just maybe one last question for you. Do, you. do you think we'll see a trend towards more of these transactions in 2019? Is it, is it possible to prognosticate? Yes, absolutely. I, th I think we will see, we will definitely see more. Um, I would be surprised if the, the three companies on this stage are not participants in that, um, because I think that they have, you know, they're all in different stages of executing on an M&A strategy, but um, are testament to the fact that, you know, you can set companies up in a way that you can bring companies together um, and find the right match to drive value. So I, I think we'll see more. I, as we talked about on the last panel, um, there is going to be a trend towards differentiated access to capital for larger companies that can drive synergies through consolidation, both through their businesses and um, through offering their investors just a bigger, more liquid platform. And so I, I do think we will see more both this year and in the years to come. I think that's an exciting trend. Well, thank you very much. Thanks to the panel.